Welcome back to Black Desserts. I'm your host, Therese Nelson. And for our final episode of season two, we're exploring the very practical manifestation of family legacy on modern baking. Baking traditions run deeply in the Black community. Over the last 11 episodes, we've explored these roots, from talking with modern bakers, picking up the activist baton of women like Georgia Gilmore, to chatting with entrepreneurs who see their work as public and cultural trust. To end this season, though, I wanted to talk with someone who grew up in a family so deeply entrenched in the power of entrepreneurship and Black food ways to help us understand what true baking legacy looks like in 2022. This is a quick housekeeping note about sound quality before you enjoy this episode. We record this series remotely, and our guests are coming to you from all over the globe. Conversations are so dope, and our guests drop so many gorgeous pearls throughout the season, so I hope that you're able to extend us a little grace and adjust into slight variances in sound quality throughout the series. I also hope that you love this season as much as I've loved hosting it. My guest this episode is Erica Council, a woman I've admired for so many years on multiple levels, who also happens to be the granddaughter of famed restaurateur, cookbook author, and Southern Foodways icon, Mrs. Mildred Mamadid Council. I am Erica Council. I'm actually Erica Council Reeves. And I am the owner and operator of Bomb Biscuit Co. It's a restaurant here in Atlanta for biscuits and breakfast and cinnamon rolls and all kinds of things. I am a, I hate to use the term writer because I don't really do that much, but I am working on a cookbook, so I guess I can add that to it and a semi-retired software engineer <laughs> to round it all up. Erica comes from a family that is steeped in a North Carolina culinary scene. To help us get a sense of how deeply these roots go, I asked her to give us a quick rundown of her extraordinary extended family and their accomplishments. My father is William Council, and his mother was Mildred Council, the owner and creator of Mama Dip's Kitchen. My aunt, Nisi, is the owner of Sweet Nisi Cakes, which is a cake mix company that you can buy all down the Northeast. My cousin, Tanya Council, definitely has inherited the, the council, Mildred Council entrepreneurship. She has several businesses. Her biggest one is her cookies, which is Tanya Cookies, and it was named Oprah's Favorite Things for 2021. So you should definitely check that out. She's got a restaurant inside the museum in Raleigh, North Carolina. She also has a sweet tea and cornbread and where she sells local goods and products for North Carolina. On my mom's side of the family, Geraldine Dorch was my granny. She was an educator who back in the 40s went to Columbia University to get an advanced degree in education with a group of other Black educators from the South. And she decided to come back to the South where most of them stayed up North and open a school. And in doing so, just earned the adulation and love of everybody in the community. Her and my grandfather was open communities, centers, and they were very big during the civil rights movement of, of serving food and raising money. But all of that culinary-wise ties into Scott's Barbecue, which 
It's no longer a restaurant, but they do serve the barbecue sauce. You can order that. You can buy it in the grocery stores in North Carolina. But that was founded in 1917 by Adam Scott. And there's the rich history there, Barbecue Alley. And just he was a complex man and his family kept the legacy alive. So... Yeah, that's me. And I am now adding on to the legacy of that with biscuits. It's hard to be serious about Black foodways, Southern cooking, or Black Southern bacon without having come across the legacy of Mildred Council. Her famed Chapel Hill, North Carolina restaurant, Mama Dibs, as well as her award-winning cookbooks, have been a source of professional inspiration for so many. Being a member of such an accomplished family, Erica had a front row seat to seeing Black culinary brilliance as a central truth. And I wanted to give her space to talk about how having that kind of affirmation on both sides of her family helped shape her own worldview. Mildred Council is an iconic figure. She was an iconic grandmother who ruled her kitchen with an iron fist. I have to say that. And she took absolutely no mess from no one. And (laughs) I think that's important. Everybody has these really like soft grandma stories of just comfort and joy. Not saying she didn't offer you that, but she also offered you that side of, okay, now get yourself together. This is what you got to do to get out here and succeed. She was part of the civil rights movement. So when you think of plate sales and bacon biscuits and the fellowship hall and around the church to raise money to fight voter rights and the Southern Christian Leaders Conference and things like that, those are the stories I was raised with on that side. So all her baked goods and cakes and stuff. She always had a story about how she made that to raise money to go boycott they had in Wilmington or no one ever writes about, right? <laughs> like the royal ice cream, which was actually the first sit-in and that was in Durham, North Carolina. So all the kind of stories and stuff that was before Greensboro. Like, so like all those kind of stories came from that, but it was always centered around foods. I think for me, my grandma was there, but I also was like surrounded by all these aunts who have paved their own way within this industry and not so much in opening a restaurant or so, but like my Aunt Spring is a beacon of hospitality. Like when you see these sort of town and country magazines with the fancy table settings and the white lady who does all the interior design and tables, like... For me growing up, that was my Aunt Spring, and she still is. So I'm like, I know who else can do that. As I mentioned a moment ago, most folks primarily associate Erica with the council side of her family tree. But she also carries the legacy of another legendary North Carolina restaurant family as well. When it comes to pastries and baking and even barbecue, uh, the lesser known side is my mom's side of the family who are related to Scott's Barbecue from Goldsboro, North Carolina. So it's two different sides of the industry, but it was always seeing Black entrepreneurs around food. So I think for both of those experiences, my view of the food industry and the restaurant industry and all that has always been at the face of Black folks. Growing up, one, I knew I was going to go to school and not work in the restaurant business. (laughs) And actually, I came full circle on that. But I just I remember how hard it was seeing that and just knowing that this was not anything I wanted to remotely do. But then coming back to this is comfortable to me. This is where everyone came to working together. And when I think about the different types of recipes that I saw formulated, not just uh, in the restaurant, but also outside of that, I talk about my great aunt Fanny, who used to keep these little jars around her house. And like she would open the jar and smell it and be like, oh, this one's not ready yet. And she would 
pick one out of the jar. And that's what she would use to make this incredible, like brown bread. And it was like fermented molasses. And it, it's just, it's some of the best thing I ever tasted. So she lived to be 103. And I think about her and like my experience with even fermented bread and yeast and sourdough, like it's the face of that has always been black. But then my journey into this, when I actually started doing more in the food industry and, and, and trying to circulate this whole culinary atmosphere, the whole face of that is white. And it just, for me, it was always jarring and hard to correlate the disconnect of my whole life, <laughs> basically, until I became an adult and went to college, to the actuality and realities of this industry. A really fascinating part of our conversation was when we started talking about the evolution of baking tradition. Erica had a lot of brilliant hot takes on the distance between the culturally rich and diverse culinary world she knew growing up and what's considered extraordinary in the mainstream of the baking industry. It's just odd to me, especially when it comes to baking. It's just, it's very white-centered. It's very white women-centered. And I don't think they make a lot of space for us in that general atmosphere. And I, I cannot relate to not seeing a Black face because, that I mean, anything that, that they are out there doing, whether it's pie, whether it's pastry, I witnessed Black people. I that That was my first peek into that world. So I, I can't correlate us not being in that space at all. And, you know, just, just the general idea. I was telling there's a young lady who works with me. I'm training her on the biscuits and the dough and all the things that we do at, at Brown Biscuits. And that was one of the things she mentioned. She's like, she had never even thought about venturing into just like every time you look at something about pastries or something, you don't never really see African-Americans in there. And she asked me, she was like, is it because they think it's complex? Erica touches on something here that a lot of us in the industry have encountered in various forms. It boils down to the arbitrary prejudice of who gets to be considered expert and how the expertise is qualified. And and I do think a little bit there, I've actually been in places where I've had people try to tell me the science behind something. I mean, it's something I've talked to Howard Conyers about the erasure of, of it, that we don't know how to formulate <laughs> ratios and stuff. I think it's always, I just laugh it off, but you do witness that a lot. You know, some of them try to talk to us about ratios and, and how you should, you know, approach bread breaking and things like that. And I won't call her name, but I remember this one lady sitting down talking to me once and we had made these sort of sourdough biscuits. She's just, so oh, who gave you the sourdough? And I say, well, it's actually this card that I'm using for the biscuits from the sourdough that I used to make the bread and other things. And she says, oh, so you've made the sourdough. And she starts talking to me about sourdough and we're having a conversation. And she says, oh, OK, so you know a little bit about that. I said, yeah, my degree is in engineering. And while it's computers, I and just your whole face was just almost a level of shock. And it's just, it's always, you get that a lot. And if you talk to Howard Conyers, he'll tell you the same thing is, is yeah, we're smart. <laughs> you know, we, we have advanced level of education, but not even that. Like the fact that my people were doing this without the, the written down theory, these are things that they formulated in their mind and came up with. Like my grandmother would make the, the bread with the fermented potatoes. That was in the 80s. And I went to a restaurant here a couple of years back and everyone was very, oh, it's bread. You got to taste bread. And I get it. And I'm like, oh, okay. 
And so the, the chef is a really nice guy. So I was talking about oh, how they formatted the potatoes. And everyone at the table was like, oh, it's just so genius. And I'm like, man, we was eating this in 83. So I just, I see so much of that. And I guess to cut into the this book I'm working on, just because the main question I get so much is like, where did you learn how to make biscuits? Like, how did you get to this journey? And Or they'll want to tell me about some white woman that's making biscuits and did I read? books to learn how to make them. So I just, I want to write down <laughs> where I learned this from, who I'm inspired by. And, and none of those people are white. Not saying there are not any great bakers or, or great white chefs who have, who've been phenomenal to me in this journey, but they have nothing to do with what I'm doing. We talk more about her book later on in the episode, but here we take a few moments to talk about practice and how Erica is approaching the cultural stewardship of the oral histories and recipes she's documenting for a forthcoming project. I will say that the biscuit recipe I use is an accumulation of one that my great-grandma had written down on a piece of paper. So I will say the people, the women in my family did write recipes down. One did it for monetary purposes, and then the other side of my family did it just, I think they were trying to pass things down or, or what, I'm not sure, but even down to my great aunts. Like I, I have all of those papers that my grandma kept that like the sweet potato recipe is, is my great grandma. They call her big mama. So yeah, so the biscuit recipe, she, she had that written down and it's fascinating because I'm from North Carolina and tobacco season and hog killing season are around the same time. So a lot of the stories, mostly with African-Americans working in the tobacco fields, and a lot of them were kids who they would recruit. So my big mama would go out into the fields and make things over fire. And so she's got these like handwritten notes about making biscuits over fire, and she's using lard and stuff like that. Things like that were written down, and those stories are kind of shared. So some of those pieces will make it into the book, whereas some of the other things that don't really even fit into biscuits and and things like that in the journey with biscuits won't. And I probably will never share them just because I uh, like my great aunt Fanny with her brown bread. I just, it's just, it's so fascinating. And it is written down, but it's something like put in the last, you know, just things you can't even find anymore <laughs> in a jar. I let it sit for three, three, sun- you know, it's just kind of like, okay, this is just something you have to think around. And I- I'm not sure if that'll ever get into a book. So there are some things I just don't think should be published, but I do think that they should to be passed down just because I think it's important, especially now. My oldest is 21, and the last time we went to North Carolina to support the pandemic, we went to the archives because you know that the federal the writers project where they interviewed all the emancipated slaves. So my my the council family is in that. So you can so there's the story in there of this lady who's talking about it. It was the cotton plantation and the council plantation, which is somewhat connected to all of the Chatham County. So there's a huge bucket of councils in in the Chatham County area and the South Carolina area because the father of the man who owned the slaves lived in South Carolina. So a lot of them came from South Carolina. So so anyway, we read some of it online, but my daughter really wanted to just see it. And and it's at the archive in North Carolina. And the the lady is is talking about her experience of being born into slavery and even being emancipated and her parents. And one of the things she talks about is being able to read. And that was the one thing she wanted to learn how to do and to be able to read and not get in trouble for reading. 
And my daughter is reading this and she just gets so upset. And I'm like explaining to her, it's important for us to know these things. It's important for you to know, like, this is where you're coming from. So your journey, let that shape your journey, knowing the people who, whose backs you're elevating on. And I, I went to her when we heard, so she's a junior and us as a nursing student. And so this year she kind of, they have apartments. So we're putting like her apartment up and everything is like in sections because it's COVID. And so she pulls out this framed document that she's printed off and and it's the story of the lady saying Jane Pittman was her name and she's writing it's the printout of the ancestor saying all I wanted to do is be able to read and go to school and so she was saying I'm gonna look at this every day when I leave this room and so my mom laughed at me and said you had an old lady moment because <laughs> you know I, I, I just started crying those kind of stories and things like that. I think it's important to share some of those and then some of them are just strictly for the family and just so that the kids coming up know, like it's easy now, but it wasn't. It's very important for you to to take these opportunities that you have on these foundations that have been built and go out here and make a difference, not just in your life, but for other people too, that not, I hate to say, but first of all, they look like you. Um, but also, just in general, be, be a, a guiding light in this world of chaos. My maternal grandmother used to always say, you should never get to the top of Martin's Mountain and turn around and don't nobody look like you. So all that to say, yeah, so some of the stories, I think baking in just family historic, I think is important to, to share. But then some of it, I think is just keep within the family. It's some type of archive type situation and just make sure it's passed on the way it should be. We're taking a quick break for a word from our sponsor. When we come back, Erica talks about Bomb Biscuit, her complicated and unlikely transition into professional baking, and what it means to contribute to a family legacy on her own terms. When you're in the food industry, standing out is key. For Talenti, that means crafting the best taste in gelatos with unique twists that spark your curiosity. And for Seattle-based chef Christy Brown, that means cultivating a strong sense of community through thoughtful recipes. At her restaurant, Communion, Chef Christy's dishes put new spins on traditional American soul food with a decidedly unique flair of the Pacific Northwest. For more on Chef Christy and other creators Talenti is supporting within the Black culinary community, follow Talenti on Instagram. Welcome back to Black Desserts, a podcast presented by Black food folks. My guest today is Erica Council, the granddaughter of legendary Mildred Council and the chef owner of popular Bomb Biscuit Co. in Atlanta, Georgia. Before the break, Erica shared some of her thoughts on her family's legacy, but I wanted to make sure in the second half that we gave space for her to talk about the phenomenon she's created with Bomb Biscuits and how that journey took her from a high-powered career in engineering to the fast-paced culinary career she never intended to pursue. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I started out a different route. Like I, I always bake, I always cooked, I always did that more of a, a stress reliever, I guess you could say. But yeah, I went the route of going into engineering. I, I worked at everywhere from Microsoft to Google to, I ended up doing this sort of, without geeking out, this sort of software that 
centered around finance. So in doing so, you learn the ins and outs of finance. So it's not, you know, it, it was just a, a means to an end, I guess it, it came to, but it was also interesting to me because I just got the experiences of being in a corporate setting, which is a whole nother beast. It, it taught me a lot of things. It, it What it taught me more than anything was this just really is not something I want to do for the rest of my life. But I guess you could say I always, I even still do pick up odd jobs and freelance things just because the, the coding and stuff, it, it fascinates me and just being able to even just do that and sit down and figure that out. I think the, the puzzles of it fascinate me. So it's something I'm drawn to, which also correlates to baking. But yeah, so with Bomb Biscuits, the aha moment, I think it started out as just, I would do these Sunday suppers at my house and people could come and eat and people would bring random people they knew. And I never was really like, yeah, sure, bring them over. For me growing up, everybody came to eat at Sunday supper. And on first Sundays, everybody ate at the church. I'm cool with that. My husband's from Philadelphia, though, so he wasn't quite as cool with it. So I, um, I had a friend mention to me, she had like a space. They were doing like pickles or something. She was like, if you want to just do this and like invite real strangers, we should think about that. So I want to say this was like 2016, and I was doing these sort of Sunday supper pop-ups, everything from soul food to roast, and we had a, a vegetarian dinner, but I always had biscuits, I always had some type of bread. So it was one particular dinner I did, it's, 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 it's some guys I know here who have a very fancy establishment called Kimball House. It's an oyster bar. But in doing so, I met a very boisterous gentleman named Brian Furman. Um, he came into <laughs> one of the pop-ups and he was eating the biscuits and the apple butter. And he told me about a restaurant he was opening in Atlanta. And we just started vibing. I was telling him about my, my great grandma and her cousin, Adam Scott, who owns Scott's Barbecue and just the connection there. And, you know, we just vibe immediately. So I think it was like two weeks later, I took him some apple butter. And he was like, this is like the best thing he's ever eaten. Like he'll eat it with a spoon. And so he mentions, he's like, you know what? You should do your biscuits here. He's like, let's do breakfast here. What do you think? Brian Furman, of course, is the brilliant award-winning pitmaster doing his own legacy building work, carrying on black barbecue traditions for a modern audience. He saw the same spark of genius everyone who meets Erica sees and offer her the unique opportunity to share space in his operation to make her gorgeous biscuits. And the rest is history. So that first weekend, I think we did 1,500 biscuits in two days. So not just the biscuits, but it was sandwiches. So it was a fried chicken, country ham, and then we were doing things like brisket burritos. I made the burrito shells. I make those from scratch. So that was the aha moment when I went home on that Sunday and I was like, I cannot feel my feet. So from there, that was 2017. And for a year and a half, we were just doing, it, it wasn't even like consistent. We black folks, so we're going to wing it. Oh, we just ain't going to do it this weekend. I don't know. How about next weekend? So we would do at least two or three a month and we could not keep, it would be so many people and we would run out so quickly. And at one point towards the end before his place burned down, we were doing it two days. So we would do it Saturday and Sunday. And we were talking about what do we do next? Like, where do we go? And Brian would always say, this is you. It's not me. It's you. It's like, he would always say that to me. And I'd be like, yeah, I don't know. He's like the old ultimate hype guy. So when bees, bees sadly burned down, but we still were doing like collaborative. We were at the farmer's market selling burritos and biscuits. And at this point I had moved into a prep kitchen, a co-working kitchen they have here called Prep Atlanta because I had taken on corporate clients. So I was doing breakfast and so forth, like these connections I had made. 
corporately turned into catering clients. And right before the pandemic, I had started looking at building out a space, which I knew wasn't the right thing to do as a first time restaurant owner. Sometimes you just get ahead of yourself. So you're looking at like spaces and things to build out, which is a whole nother other conversation that I think is fascinating. Who can, Whose foot is on the pulse of who is allowed to rent space. It's not an advertisement, right? Like you you can go online and it says these places are available for a retail lease, but like the actual places where you want to be, that's never advertised. It's controlled like a small group of people. And if they like you, they're going to let you know where. Oh, yeah, we got the space. We got tenant allowance. We got all this, but they're not interested. You'll never know about it. Yeah, so I know we don't have time for that. But luckily, I appreciate that. I guess someone has faith in me. So, you know, we were looking at different spaces. We were looking at Summer Hill and to the point where we had pitched a tent and we're serving biscuits. And in the interim, someone else tells me again about a space that's inside this sort of market, but it's next to this pizza pizza place that I know. And the guy who owns that, we have a bunch of mutual friends. And I'm like, okay, let's see what it does. And so this is the eighth week. And we kind of, we run out of food every weekend. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like a fishbowl, right? So you can only grow as big as a fishbowl. So we're still actively looking for the space so that we can manage. Because I hate telling people, oh, we don't have the cinnamon rolls because the person who came before you bought like 40 of them. It makes it more, uh, you know, elusive. Oh, I got to get here early to get them. But at the same time, if once we have a bigger space, we can do more product because it's, it's 350 square feet that we're working out of. Bomb Biscuit Co. became a hit, quickly gathering rave reviews from customers and local media alike. The thing that has been most impressive about Erica's rise has been her ability to present a modern, socially relevant, and aesthetically savvy brand that's also deeply steeped in tradition. She's making her own space for Bomb Biscuits in the same way her family has done for decades across all segments of food and beverage. And she manages to do it all with a vitality and energy that makes you proud to witness. Because she's using her platform to preserve a small, beautiful part of Black food ways with integrity and a profound sense of responsibility. I'm grateful. It's a blessing. But we have quickly outgrown this little stand. (laughs) Because people want to come in, they want to sit and eat. And this is a stand, so it's like six bar stools. And once they get there and they start to talking, they'll talk to me. The the young lady who runs the social media page, Jayla, she works in front of the house. She's the manager. And she's great. She went to Tuskegee. So we get a lot of HBCUs. So the Support Black Colleges guy, Corey, major shout out to him. He's got like a million followers and he comes like everywhere. He will post it. He did a whole reel and we've gotten so much love just from the HBCU community. Like every day we're open, we get it's Morehouse, a Spellman, of course, North Carolina A&T. Like we call our regulars the bomb squad. And then this one older gentleman, his name is Reggie. He calls himself the lieutenant, but he's a cute dog and he went to Bethune-Cookman. So it's just... The vibe there, I think, when you're saying like the vibe and like making it modern, it's definitely not saying everyone doesn't feel welcoming, but when my people show up, we show up. (laughs) So, so that's definitely. So when you come in, there's normally somebody there. We're normally either he's either talking to me or J Lo or something. We're talking about like the black experience. We got like the '70s, '80s vibe music playing, And, and the pizza place next to us. The owner of that is relatively young. So like we all just vibe as a like a whole community. The guy who makes the pizza dough for that place is black. 
and it's all sourdough pizza dough. So like we're normally there early in the week prepping together. And it's just like his story and Mata like just talking to him. I'm like, you are doing it, right? <laughs> so like the vibe around the whole, like the, the experience, I guess you could say, has really helped Bomb Biscuits. I think a lot of the reviews that I'm seeing, the staff is friendly and they're talking to you. Like we get, a, I get a lot of people from North Carolina. A lady came in the weekend or so ago and she was like, I worked at Mama Dips in 1986 and she stayed for about two hours and just talked to me about that and come to find out she knew my mom because my mom went to USC Chapel Hill Uh, she knew my mom so that kind of vibe has definitely helped because I'm a talker so I'm gonna be able to (laughs) I guess I I inherited that from my grandma dip for sure because there was a seat and when you walk into dips there's a seat right in the front it's like a, a shorter booth where she would sit watch the customers come in and she speak to everyone and talk to everyone. I definitely have inherited that from her. I remember your name. I remember where you, oh, is this your daughter? How's your daughter doing? That's just innate, I guess. Before we ended our conversation, I asked Erica to give us a quick preview of her forthcoming cookbook. As you can imagine from everything she shared during our conversation, her research practices is the next level. And the thoughtfulness and care she's pouring into these recipes and stories makes this book one of my top five most anticipated reads of 2022. Yes. So, gosh, the publishing day actually makes me nervous. I'm not sure. So I'm I'm working on getting all of it together. So my editor is Francis Lamb. It's through Coxton Potter. The tentative to Still We Rise. And it's a sort of stories about who has inspired me, not just family and just personally, but just also through, I guess you could say, osmosis. So cookbooks that I have learned different techniques out of that all tie back to Black chefs. So the book will start out with how how we got here and how I got here and just harking back and giving credit to those who hardly ever get the credit. There's tons of bread baking and and technique recipes written by Black authors from decades ago. And I'm writing about that. And then I, I wax on about how I have developed my own recipes. And so you'll get all those recipes and you'll get the story of Mom Biscuits towards the end with all the different sandwich recipes and techniques. And yeah, that's, that should be published next year. And that brings us to the end of Baking Legacy, episode six of Black Desserts. I want to thank my guest, Erica Council, for generously taking time for this conversation and sharing so much of her family story with us. I can't wait to make my way back to Atlanta for her biscuit, and I especially can't wait to get my hands on a copy of her new book. If you're lucky enough to be in the Atlanta area, you can follow Erica at Bomb Biscuits ATL on Instagram, where you'll be so hungry keeping up with her weekly flavors and special delivery and pop-up jobs. You can also check out Erica's personal website, southernsoufflé.com, for more information on her book and all the other cool projects she has going on. This also brings us to the end of season two. I hope that you've enjoyed our conversations this season. I really want to explore deeper ideas around identity and culture that look beyond desserts themselves. I wanted to make space to examine the motivation and cultural competency of the folks carrying on Black baking traditions across the diaspora. Our guests this season have exceeded my expectations. Black Desserts is the first of many forthcoming storytelling projects from Clay Williams and Colleen Vincent, the founders of Black Food Folks. 
I want to thank them for trusting me to host this series and take the conversations on the global ride we've been on. It's been one of the greatest honors of my career. We could not make this series without the brilliant technical production expertise of Whetstone Media and their newly formed Whetstone Radio Collective. If you aren't already, you should absolutely be following them for all the new and brilliant programming coming from their massive global culinary brain trust. I want to be sure to take this moment to give special thanks to founder Stephen Satterfield for his kindness and kinship in supporting this series from the beginning. I also want to give a shout out to executive producer and master storyteller Celine Glazer for making me a better, more thoughtful host. I also want to make sure we take time to give a shout out to season two producer Marvin Yu, who has helped me make sense of a slightly more abstract season two and execute these conversations beyond anything I could have imagined. I'd like to also thank our sponsor for season one and two, Talente Gelato and Sorbeto. Their support has not only made this series possible, but it has made possible for Clay and Colleen to extend financial support to nearly two dozen entrepreneurs through the Black Food Folks Small Business Grant Project we've been highlighting all season. Finally, I want to thank you, our listeners, for sticking with us for two seasons and celebrating all of our amazing voices who have taken the time to share themselves with you over the last 12 episodes. It's been a great joy crafting these stories, and you all have shown love and support by sharing the episode so generously, so thank you. If you aren't already, please follow Black Food Folks, Weston Radio Collective, Weston Magazine, and Black Culinary History on all social platforms for updates on Season 3 of Black Desserts, and more importantly, for all the other amazing projects coming from everyone across these platforms. I've been your host, Trace Nelson, and thank you again for listening to Black Desserts. Black Desserts is a limited series podcast presented by Clay Williams and Colleen Vincent, founders of Black Food Folks. The show is made possible by continued support of our sponsor, Talenti Gelato and Sorbeto. Black Desserts is produced by the brilliant creative team of Whetstone Media, led by founder Stephen Satterfield, season two producer Marvin Yu, editor Mary Creedon, intern Kyla Stone, and supervising producer Celine Glazer.